Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Welcome to the Rugby Dungeon. I'm JV and today we'll be having Ian Borshaw joining us very shortly. Before that, thank you for subscribing, thank you for listening, and if you've got some spare time, please leave a review. Apparently it is of vital importance that you do so. You can follow me at Jay Beardmore, this podcast at the Rugby Dungeon, and if that's not enough rugby for you, and it never is enough, why don't you follow our other podcast, which is The Rugby Podcast, otherwise known as Egg Chasers, starring Phil and Tim, which is great banter, and now every Monday, regardless of alien invasions, general elections, natural disasters, it's always out every Monday, 52 weeks of the year. So go and have a look at that. Is it 52 weeks in the year? It doesn't really matter. Just go and listen. It's great. Also, thank you to our sponsors, Field and Flower. Field and Flower have supported us from the very beginning of this podcast, made the whole thing possible, and you've supported them. A load of you have signed up, and I'm glad to say, if you decide to sign up this week... If you uh, tweet me and just show me that you've signed up, I'll put you into a draw for a load load of new stash. So um, that will be coming your way if you sign up. How do you sign up? Well, you go on to the Field and Flower website. Field and Flower are the suppliers of grass-fed, organic, traceable meat direct to your door. Uh, just just go on the, just go on the website Field and Flower. Choose one of the many boxes that they offer. Um, they've got barbecue box, poultry box. They've got load, loads and loads of boxes. Um, sign up, use our code Rugby Twenty, and that's simply it. Let me know that you've done it. I'll add you into our our draw, and hopefully, not only will you have a box of delicious grass-fed meat, you might also win some nice stash. So everyone's a winner. That's Field and Flower, and it's our code Rugby Twenty. Okay, let's get into this. This is my chat with Ian Bolshaw. How are you, Ian? Good evening. Very well, thank you, mate. Very uh, well. What are you up to this evening? Have you, have you t- say something along the lines of you've, you're dealing with some sort of rugby team this weekend? No, a rugby team. Yeah. Did no, no, no. <laughs> I say that? Uh, something, <laughs> something along those lines. Yeah, Bayon or something. Fate, oh, Fate de Bayon. I just assumed uh, that was something no, to do with the rugby team. It's the Fete de Bayon, um, basically where they hand the keys out for five days of the year. Um, and... It's, I think it's like the fifth or fourth biggest festival in the world. Is it? Uh, yeah. I think there's over a million people that go. And what happens? And what happens? It just gets, eats lots of really nice food and just gets ridiculously drunk. Um, it starts at about 10 o'clock in the morning and then goes on to about four o'clock in the morning. And it's oh, like that every day for five days. And how many, um, how many days have you done? Just two this year. I'm getting old now. So <laughs> I, can't, I can't manage more than that. So is um, it... it was a bit. It wasn't the same atmosphere this year. Obviously, with all the things that are happening in France at the moment, mm. uh, um, things that happened in Paris uh, and in Nice. Yeah, I think there was a big security. Yeah. So it wasn't exactly the same atmosphere this year. It was still very, very good. It was just a sort of an edgier atmosphere where usually. They have Children's Day, so we go with all the family dressed in red and white. Um, they have the uh, the opening of it where they there's probably about three hundred thousand people where a local uh, with the mayor hands the keys to the city, which is you know it's a fantastic experience to be there and be part of that. But that was cancelled uh, due to the things that have gone on in France. So it was a little bit, a little bit different this year, but still still great fun. <laughs> great oh, fun. excellent! So where are you based then? So I live in between Bayonne and Biarritz, okay. uh, in a place called Arcon, still in the south of France. Um, when I finished two years ago, my we'd been here for six years. Uh, my kids, when we moved, my eldest was four, my son was two, 
and they're more French than English now. And my daughter, my youngest, was born here, so we've decided to stay on. We love the French way of life. We love um, the quality of life we have here. Um, and like I said, my my kids are now more French than English, uh, which yeah. which is nice. But at the same time. You know, we, we, we still won't lose our English heritage, that's for sure. Still got a slight Lancashire twang, I'd hope. I, I, I have. After seven years, my French is still terrible. <laughs> it's still kind of very good. <laughs> uh, so do you say you've got, a, you've got a son and a daughter? I've got a daughter who is now, she'll be 12 in September. My son's just turned 10. Okay. Uh, about ago, and my youngest is six. And, have you, and uh, have you got any of them playing rugby yet? No, my son played uh, a little bit, but he is very much into his tennis. He plays quite a lot of tennis. Oh, um, okay. Plays about five, five, six times a week. Oh, so so he's you, doing very, he so, still loves the rugby, but he's moved towards tennis. I'm not bothered, really, if he goes into rugby or not. I'm just happy that he plays as many sports as possible. Well, that is the, uh, new, that is the new thing, though. I mean, uh, if I ever talk to the RFU coaches over here, it's very much a case of go away, go and play as many sports as you can, and then if you want to play rugby later on in life, apparently it lends itself to better players. I'm sceptical of that approach, but um, that's apparently what the experts say. Well, for me, I think as long as the children are happy playing, mm. I think you can try as many sports as possible. Uh, I can only see it being a, a positive. Yeah. Uh, into eye coordination, team sports, individual sports, obviously different mentality. Um, I think if you just vary as much as possible and then later down the line, the children can make the decision uh, which route they want to take. Absolutely. I'll just say something quickly. The first time I came across you uh, as as a rugby player, I was interested to find out if I actually remember this. It was on Sky Sports and I think Ben K, uh, Ben K, Ben Cohen had just had his first, uh, first couple of caps and they did a feature of Ben K, who was matching up against you, on the wing for Bath, and they did a feature with you doing various skills. I don't suppose that you remember that. <laughs> no. <laughs> oh, it's important. What sort of skills are we doing? It, what sort of things are we doing? Well, it's important because they got you in the Bath car park, and like they made you do little tricks, like uh, kick the ball through someone's feet, throw it up, catch it in your knees. You know, like uh, like yeah, show off yeah. tricks, and. I cannot remember that. For the life of me, I cannot remember that. It must have been a long time ago now. <laughs> oh, well, uh, me and a friend uh, uh, from school uh, from school, uh, were watching, and we mastered all three of those tricks. So you, right. well, you are well, directly responsible for increasing my skill set. <laughs> oh, you're welcome. You're welcome. <laughs> uh, I'm trying to think what they were now. They I, were... I can't for the life of me remember. Uh, one of them was throwing the ball up in the air, like spiraling it up and yeah. catching it in, in between your knees. That, I mean, yeah. tremendous, tremendously useful in a game. The other one, you put behind your back, I'm pretty sure you put it behind your back, and flipped it over with your heel. Okay. And the third one was kind of putting it between your legs and then grubbering it. I've always wanted to do the second one in a match. Yeah. When you're one-on-one with a defender when I was playing, that was always my ambition to do it, but I never had the guts in the end to do it. I've or done... just not the skill to do it. <laughs> I've, I've, I've done it in training, and I've seen it done for, for real once up in... I was like, Darlington. I saw someone in Darlington do it, one-on-one. And it came off? It did. did. It did. He scored. Oh, fair play. I think it's one, of those, play. Well, it's one of those things, isn't it? You don't do it unless you know you can do it. Yeah, but I think it's different doing it in training than doing it in a match, like all these things. Um, but I'd love to see it on the big stage, international level, one-on-one with the last man and someone has the goal. Yeah, absolutely. To pull it off would be an incredible piece. It'll happen before too long. Someone will actually pull it out. Well, you would have thought, I mean, it's quite a well-known move anyway. Uh, you'd have thought it might have all, already happened. Oh, yeah, and the caveat to this, they can't do it if the game, if the game is a foregone conclusion. If you're, if you're on the end of a massive beating. Okay. Yeah. And it has to be, has to be a, a decisive point in the game, a moment. Yeah. Fours are level, two or three points. You know, either way, I think uh, if someone pulls out, that will be go down as one of the greatest pieces of skill. The first person to do it, it will be... Uh, It'd be something to behold. <laughs> uh, and you can get it on video and get it up on Rugby Pigs immediately. Oh, of course. Of course, Rugby Pigs definitely will have it on there first. <laughs> uh, now, I am familiar with Rugby Pigs because they were the, one of the first accounts to follow us um, when, yeah. we, when we started the other podcast, Egg Chasers. had no idea yeah. that you were involved. So uh, just, just tell me a bit about that. Well, it started really. We 
it started about two or three years ago now. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was a boozy afternoon. And one of my friends just said, why don't you, let's make a website. And at the time, obviously, we all joked about it and laughed about it, but he was deadly serious. Yeah. Uh, and we, we sort of went into it gung-ho, not having a clue uh, what we were doing. But people seemed to like it. Um, we got a lot of uh, sort of action or interaction. Yeah. Uh, on sites like Twitter and Instagram. Yeah. Um, you know, there's been good parts of it. There's been bad parts of it. Things that you went too too soon, mm-hmm. uh, too quick, too soon uh, with other parts that we should have followed up first. But it's been a good learning curve. Yeah, and yeah. We still, we still do. We're actually doing the site at the moment. We're redoing all the site. Uh, but we're focusing very heavily on the social media side for the next six months, I think. Yeah. So what, so what can we running. expect in the future from Rugby Pigs? Wait and see. Watch oh, space. come on. <laughs> no, I think we're going to see what is... We're going to go really hard with the social media. Yep. Um, and like I said, we've got a couple of people. It's not... We're going to totally rechange the website mm-hmm. and see where we go from there. Right. Uh, we shall see. I don't even know, to be honest. The, the other guys are sorting that out. <laughs> so uh, are you actually quite active on there then, you personally? I will. I every I, I do quite a lot. I like interacting when the guys put something um, or I'll take photos if I go out mm-hmm. um, or go to events with other you know, ex-players or fellow players, send them through. A very good friend of mine does all the social media stuff, which seems to be taken off quite well. Um, you know, I like interacting with when debates about the rugby or there's a bit of banter flying around. They always get involved, and a lot of my friends do as well. Yeah, the guys are places, which is all is always great. Well, I, mean, um, I wouldn't say I'm at it every day, twenty four seven. But when I see a good piece of banter or a good uh, photo with a caption on it, I'll put my two pennies within or something that I don't like. I'll still ch- I'll chip in with that. Yeah, I, I tell you what. The, I, you can't really go much further at the moment than uh, James Haskell on Instagram. Like, I, I don't want to condone it. Uh, I don't want to say that I, say I like it, but I absolutely love it. I absolutely love it. The media mogul. He's brilliant. He, he's, he's actually got a gift for the whole thing. No, he's very, very good. And I like the way he does it as well, because it's just with a pinch of salt, you know, tongue-in-cheek sort of stuff. Yeah. Um, no, he, he, the Hask. Does he I, call himself the Hask, yeah? If he doesn't, he's like should... the half. Uh, if he, he should, doesn't, he should do. He should do. Yeah. Uh, did, did you see? I didn't suppose you got, you got to see his economy banter the other day. Oh, uh, well. On, on, a, on a plane? Yeah, yeah, yeah. On a plane? Okay. Being ch- he, I, don't, I didn't think he'd, uh, he'd fly economy. Well, uh, yeah. yeah. Uh, that, I, mean, I mean, I'm not going give to the, give the bit now because that will ruin it. But yeah, basically, he's whinging about, about economy, which I think is brilliant because not only is he, an, is he antagonizing the world with how good he is at rugby and how he's proved everyone wrong, he's now saying that he doesn't even fly economy, which I absolutely loved. I thought it was brilliant. Who was he flying with? Or wasn't he, was he genuinely saying, I am not flying economy? No, no, he was uh, disgusted that his England ticket said economy on it. <laughs> good lad so uh, I guess then through rugby pigs it, it keeps you very involved in the game and all the goings on then uh, it does I wouldn't say I, I've living out here down in the south of France I'm not I wouldn't say I'm very up to date with what's going on say in the premiership in England okay. I still watch you know some big games uh, every now and again mm-hmm. uh, obviously I, I watch quite a few of the internationals yeah, uh, I still read it, but I wouldn't say I am um, day in day out looking up rugby, uh, um, which a lot of my mates will say is a load of cods while up. <laughs> uh, yeah. But it's true. So, I've sort of taken a step back, mm-hmm. and I've when I finished, um, obviously down going into other ventures now and things like that. But I'll still, you know, when England play at Twickenham, I always come across for things like that. Yeah, uh, and when big Heineken Cup matches are on, I'll. You know, I'll watch. I'll watch them. So is, still, it's, very, it's very hard to have done something yeah. since you were ten years old for you know sixteen, seventeen years professionally to all of a sudden cut it and uh, not not watch it or be involved in some way. So I, of course, I still uh, I'm still a very avid fan of rugby, but I wouldn't say I'll be following every single week, mm-hmm. making sure I'm watching every single game that's available. So of, uh, of the two leagues, then, are you more French centric when you're watching? 
uh, I will be because it's just on television here the most. Yeah. Uh, so it's very accessible for me. Would but you... again, there's some dire bloody games in France. Well, so... that's what I was going to ask next, really. I mean, what do you make of the health of the French game at, at the moment at club level? Uh, well, I think it's, it's in a good state because we're managing to get all these superstars coming across to play in the French League. So, mm. you know, having the, some of the world's best players, a lot of the world's best players coming over from New Zealand, South Africa, uh, Australia, Argentinians. Um, for me, it's great to be able to go week in, week out to Paris, to Toulon, and see these superstars of the game. Mm. Yeah. Yes, they, a lot of them are coming at the twilight of their career. Uh, a lot of them obviously are coming for the cash, which you know you can't hide from. Um, but I still think it, it's a good thing. One thing I don't think it's good for is the French national team. Yeah. I mean, I still can't work out why the French national team can't get it together. I understand there's a long season, but there's a lot of French talent still in the French leagues. No matter which way you cut it up, they're a, su- a superbly talented team. Yeah, oh, they are. They've got, and they've got a lot of young lads, uh, some really, really good young players coming through. But the problem is, these young players are mm. not playing for their clubs right. because of the superstars coming across. Um, now, that's in the end, it's going to have a massive effect on the French national team. Yeah, because uh, these these guys need to be playing week in week out to gain that experience. Uh, to be playing week in, week out against the top teams in Europe. Mm. Um, and it has a big knock-on effect from the national team. I don't know. They need to do something about the um, the French Federation need to bring in some rule. But the problem is the clubs are too powerful. Yeah. There's just too much money being branded around. And, well, there needs to be some give on either side. But they need to come up with something uh, that, you know, is going to help the national team progress and move forward. Because at the moment, I just... I can't see it happening. And how about things like attendances at, at French club games and you know the, uh, and the style that they play? Oh, they're packed each week. You look at where well, you go to Clermont, there's 20,000 every single week throughout the year. Uh, Toulouse, packed every week. Mm. So the attendances are pretty big. They're capacity crowds, especially when you get the big teams coming. European games will all be packed. Yeah. Uh, um, so there's nothing wrong with attendances. I think the thing is here, it's all about, because there's so much money involved in the game now. It's all about winning. Uh, no matter how you win, it's all about getting the points. You don't want to get relegated, obviously, because then you lose your TV sponsorship, the big pay packets yeah. from from sponsors uh, that these guys get. Uh, but you want you want to make Europe. Um, so it's about making sure you're in the top six, making sure you're in Europe, um, and not getting relegated. Because it's all like in all sport now. It's all evolves around cash. Yeah, uh, guys just want to make sure they're up. They don't care how they win as long as they get their points, uh, which then again has a bit of a knock-on effect uh, when it comes to the style you play. <laughs> yeah, it's a really interesting conundrum, isn't it? Because if I look at the English game, which I watch a lot of, yeah, they talk a lot about the style and you know how the Premiership's progressing. And I do th- genuinely think, I think most people would agree with me too, that the style of the English game at club level is very attractive and people like people like to watch it. Yeah, actually attendances and the success of the game isn't really based on the style. And I think the French League proves that time and time again. I mean, because, like you say, it's 20,000 at Toulouse, 20,000 at Clermont. I think, though, as well, with the, with the UK, you've got a huge competitor in football. Yes. Now, in France, everything from, if you draw a line from Lyon to Bordeaux, mm-hmm. everything but that line is rugby. Is that right? So is rugby bigger in, in that area than football? Well, you just have to take a look at Bordeaux. Bordeaux rugby team get more spectators mm-hmm. than a football team. Is that right? Yeah. Oh, I, I uh, had no idea. So, yeah, it's getting... Rugby is absolutely huge down here. Um, where you look at football in the UK, mm-hmm. you can add... Well, I don't, think, I don't think rugby will ever be able to compete with football in the UK. I don't know. You look at all the teams around Manchester. You look at all the teams around London. Probably in Cornwall, Exeter. They're definitely what, who are they competing with? Bristol Rovers, yeah, maybe. Bristol City, maybe. So Exeter can get there. Big, big attendances. Look 
how can Sale compete with nine Premiership football clubs? Well, that's a good that's a good point actually. But on the other hand, I mean, Sale have got their own set of problems. Like no one can get to the stadium, no one can get in there, no one can get out there. Most people don't know where it is. There's an awful lot of things wrong with Sale. But actually, I think yeah. the English game in general, the attendances are up each and every year, and I think the the steady growth with salary caps and all that sort of stuff and actually limiting the amount of foreign players coming in. I'm not necessarily a fan of all that, but I am a fan of the equal spending between all the clubs, which is why I think we've got this very competitive game. I mean, if I was going to look at the the two leagues, I'd say what French lack, and please correct me here, what the French lack is the standard of coaching that the, that the English squads get. And that's because there's more money to go on coaches because they literally can't spend it on players. Yep, agreed. Um, I also think here there's a lot of old school coaching. Yes. Yeah. And it's very French orientated. You look at the premiership. I think there... You'll probably have to correct me if I'm wrong, but there are, there are coaches who have come up through all the levels. They've got lots of vast experience. They're not afraid to get foreign coaches in. No which I think you can bring other, same with players. I think when you bring foreign coaches, it adds a little bit of dimension, bring their culture, bring their experience from their, their backgrounds, some of the hemispheric backgrounds. I don't know. I just, I think the whole, the, the French system for me, it's because they're not willing to look, to take ideas and willing to go and look abroad. I just think, because they don't have the experience in their own country, I think it's, you can see it in their game and their style of play. It's just having a big knock-on effect. Uh, and that's why you see so many or a lot of dual games. Now, you take other clubs, well, a couple of clubs. Take Claremont, for instance, yeah. their style yeah. of rugby. Now, Claremont have been, it's from the Vern Cotter era. For me, they've probably had the most consistent style of play, the most entertaining style of play to watch for the last 10, 12 years, if you look throughout Europe. Yeah. Uh, now, Vern and Joe Smith, two foreign coaches that they brought into Claremont, amazingly successful in terms of they didn't win much silverware, but they were always in the knockout stages of the barrage. They were always in the Heineken Cups. Yeah, they were so close, uh, actually. And I'm very surprised that a lot of other teams have not gone down the same route. Uh, they've seemed to keep it in-house, um, where I think now when you've got this much money to spend and the stat that you've got the, the players that they've got uh, at their disposal, mm. you look at club like Toulon, you look at club like Toulouse, the quality that they've got at their disposal, but they've kept it in-house, the coaching. For me, you need to go a bit like what England have now done. They've gone for the, the top, best of the best, and you can see that in their performances. Yeah. Uh, um, I, I mean, what, what was your direct experience going from Gloucester, big English club, and then ending up in Biarritz? Was there, was there a definite difference for you when you moved? Oh, huge difference. Absolutely huge difference. The chalk and cheese, the professional in terms of structure of your day, structure of your week, mm-hmm. uh, structure of the way the game was going to be played. To come to Biritz, where it was literally just play. Uh, but the first two years, I've got to say, it was a sort of a breath of, breath of fresh air for me as well. Yeah. Because when it, the first couple of years I was here, two, three years, we had a very, very good team. We had six or seven current you know, international French players uh we had a lot of foreigners um who were at the top of their game mm-hmm. and it sort of we gelled very well so, um, so I, i'm trying to think then when you uh, when you first arrived you must have had what yashvili da- damian try harry nordiki was nianga still there uh, no he'd left when i arrived but, um we-, we had a couple of south african lads we so we had fabian barcella jerome tion damian try uh, Benoit Auguste, uh, Imanol Harry Nordicui, Yash, um, Bidabe, Nicola Brusque, <laughs> uh, Zian Gwenya, Carmichael Hunt was here. Oh, did uh, he come from uh, Stade Francais? Did, did he have his little stint there, there as well? Who's that? Carmichael Hunt. Carmichael, I'd know he didn't. I'm not sure. Did he go to Stabs first before us? I've got a feeling he did, but I could be wrong. I know he's I at Reds now. Yeah. So we had. We, we probably had about 15, 16 people in our squad, French alone, that had played for France. Wow. Uh, now you add that, the foreigners that came in, it was a very good mix, but we had 40 players, so we had a huge pack. We had, you know, Yash, when he was on song, the whole team ticked. And we had a good spine of the team. And that was very important. But we had no structure. There was no structure of such. Uh, uh, 
I mean, what do you mean when you say no structure, like no playing structure or no support structure to get you, you know, from A to B and do training, that kind of thing? I know we had structure in our week of training. So obviously you got told your training at this time. <laughs> this, that. But I mean, in terms of a game plan, obviously had their line out calls. We had no real structure in our, the way we played. That's amazing. Um, which is great for someone like me. And then when you've got someone like Dimitri Ashvili ordering and bossing your forwards around mm-hmm. and getting everybody going in the same direction. But the only the problem is with that, if you have an off day and things don't click and we had them, yeah. you are absolutely screwed. <laughs> you crap. Yeah, I mean, nothing's right for you. And then you try and force it a little bit more and force it and force it. I mean, that's the uh, for me that's the only downside. Uh, what we needed was and we did that in in our second and so like in our third year, we had sort of a blueprint of how we wanted to play. And if it started going pear-shaped, we just used to go fall back to that. Uh, um, it's just finding the balance, I think. You take a team like Saracens now. I love everything they, that they do. I really, I, I think they're brilliant. They, they've perfected their structure in a way that everyone knows exactly what needs to be done. Yep. Just stranglehold teams. But then what they allow for, they allow players to go out of structure and do their stuff individually, but as soon as something, the ball doesn't come out quick enough or there's a bad pass, they just fall straight back into structure again. Yeah. Uh, and you've, well, you've seen how well it works because just how well they've been playing for the last few years. I think they're incredible. I mean, do you know what I love most about them is how comfortable they are without the ball. Uh, when they go for the 16 phases, they don't need the ball and they get off the line, quick press, quick press, and it just goes over and over yeah. again. I absolutely love them. I think, I think they are possibly the the world's leading team when it comes to utilising coaches, information, uh, stru- structuring game plans. I think they're brilliant. No, I agree. I think that, I think we, we haven't seen the last of them, certainly in terms of Heineken Cup and Premiership trophies. <laughs> no, no, no. Well, and the worrying thing is they're so young. I mean, George Chris, Atoji, Farrell, Good, they're only going to get better. I mean, the, the, I the, think the, the that's going to be great for them as well. Yeah. That'll be... Fantastic news for for England because these guys, you know, they they keep playing against the best players in Europe. They keep winning against these guys, um, and it's only going to have a good knock on effect uh, well, for the for the international game. Well, for all his for all his faults, one of the things that I thought would be very interesting is if Stuart Lancaster had got the Toulon job because he's he's got the Rolls Royce of players there, and what yeah. Toulon lack, well, if they lack anything, of course, yeah. is just someone who is there to coach all week and actually puts out yeah. cones and makes them do stuff. Give, give, them, give them some direction. Yeah, I mean, from what I've heard, the coach doesn't show up till Thursday and Matt Gitto does most of the backs training. I mean, that's literally what, what I've been told. Yeah, I've heard, I've heard various things. Obviously, I know quite a lot of the guys who play there. Yeah. Uh, um, it's very, very player-orientated. <laughs> that's a very polite player. way of putting it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, which is not a bad. You think you got that much experience? You just need a coach basically to give you a few bits, bits of direction. Mm. Uh, um, but then you'd let the players run it, and I think that's why they were so successful when Johnny and Gitz was Matt Gitter was, you know, they were playing together at ten and twelve. Yeah, uh, and I think you're right. They they basically ran the whole show. Um, but when you've got two world class players like those guys why wouldn't you want to you know why wouldn't you let them run it uh, oh, yeah. you surround that by you look at their forward pack they had mm-hmm. uh, you know you want these guys these guys who've got 100 caps for their countries these guys who've got 80 caps for their countries you want them all putting in their little two pennies worth oh absolutely um, but can you imagine what they'd be like if they just bought the bought over the saracens coaching team on mass and then installed that on top yeah. of that talent it'd be terrifying well, like we said, like we said before, I can't believe like clubs like that haven't, with the present they've got, haven't just gone right. We're just going to go out because they've certainly got the cash. Mm-hmm. We're going to go out and get five of the best coaches in the world. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but there's a big, there's, I think well, they're very proud, aren't they, the French? And they, I can understand it as well. They don't want, they don't want lots of foreigners flooding in, mm-hmm. taking over the whole club, even though a lot of these clubs now have. A lot of foreigners, uh, a, a very uh, cosmopolitan playing staff, you might say. Yeah, like exactly, exactly. I think so, most of the clubs in France now they speak English. So, just going back <laughs> to uh, the last few years you had in Biritz, were you retired before the team went down? I had retired. Yes, I retired the no. Well, I actually officially retired the year the team went down, but I hadn't played mm-hmm. 
since six months before that. So I didn't play for 18 months before I retired. Okay, so can you just give me a bit of the narrative of exactly what happened that year? Because from over this side, we didn't really hear much about the French top 14. And at the end of the season, you think, oh, hang on, their hits have gone down. That's sort of a big deal. I think it, it started way before that. So mm-hmm. when I arrived, the first two years I was there, as I said before, we had a very, very big playing squad and a very, very good playing squad. Yeah. Um, so we had between 35 and 40 players, top, mm-hmm. top quality players. And I think, well, I know that what happened is each year after that, they tried to spend less money and try and get the same quality. Now, it's just impossible to do. Yeah. So we'd end up letting a player go for more money. Uh, for Obviously, someone would offer them a bit, uh, another contract, but we wouldn't get the same calibre of player in because we were probably offering half the wage or mm. whatever. You know. And this happened then through four or five years, where in the end we had such a depleted squad of experience. We had a lot of young players, a lot of good young players coming through but they needed that core of experienced players uh, around them. Uh, and in the end, they just wasn't, we just didn't have the quality. We weren't good enough. So was it a case of the club not having the money um, or a case of the club just trying to pull back and they pulled back too often too soon? I think a bit of both, but I think majority, I think financially, uh, the club just didn't have the cash to, to carry on and compete with you know, the big clubs. Because you've got mm-hmm. to remember here, Biritz is a very, very small town. There are no big companies that uh, you look at Montpellier with Altrad, you look at Toulouse with Peugeot, uh, Michelin with uh, Claremont. Oh, okay. They are big, organiza- big organizations that give uh, a lot of money. Is that right? So are, are those teams, are you saying that those teams are affiliated to those companies? Well, I mean- they're big sponsors of theirs, aren't they? Yeah, well, actually, now you mention it, yeah, because Peugeot are with Toulouse and uh, Claremont it's, are famously it's just, with, with, it's with just, Michelin. It's just a big uh, city. You look at all the big cities, they've got big sponsors. Mm-hmm. Well, we, now, we, we obviously had Monsieur Kampf, uh, which was an incredible sponsor, of Cap Gemini. But I think by the end of it, I think Monsieur Kampf was giving it from his own... Yeah. I don't actually know. Yeah. He, was, he was actually giving it from his own wallet and not Cap Gemini. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your Cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way. So you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I weren't giving. I'm, I'm not. I don't know the ins and outs. So, uh, and then you look at bike on. They're just next door to us. So the best thing, in my opinion, now what they should have done when Bayon and Biritz both went down, they should have had a fusion between the both clubs and made a pay Basque team. But like we said before, there's just too many egos flying around. Yeah, and also, I mean, that's one of the famous rivalries. Anywhere. It is. I totally agree in that. You know, the Bass Derby is, you know, the games I play, they've been fantastic. They've been amazing to be part of them. So just going uh, away from rugby a second then, what what is there in, in Biarritz? Tourism. Surf. It's the number one surfing spot in Europe. Is that right? So, yeah. Oh, and there just happens happens to be a rugby club there. 
uh, yeah, I don't really. It's Quicksilver's what would be one of the biggest companies down here, but it's it's tourism. You look in the. I think Biarritz in the winter, mm-hmm. it's about eighteen thousand people uh, who live who live here or in the area. God, it uh, is tiny. Yeah, it's tiny. But then you look at the summer now. I think it goes up tenfold or t- even twenty. I think it's just a, an astronomical amount. The people, the amount of people now who come here for four weeks. You usually it's, it's about two kilometers from my house to, or three kilometers to Birrit City Centre. It probably takes you five minutes in the winter. It probably takes me about twenty-five minutes. Oh wow! Uh, so, so get that now. So, like, what the what the crowds like from Birrit? Obviously, they they're taking their crowds further away than just the eighteen thousand in the town. Their crowds. Mm. So we used to get well. We didn't because every game of rugby shown on. Uh, TV here. Yeah. When I first arrived, we'd fill the stadium up. Uh, it'd be full. Yeah. People come from, when I say Biritz, I mean the city centre. If you look at Biritz in general, there's, there's lots of other tiny other uh, areas around Biritz. Mm-hmm. You've got Unglet, Bidar, uh, Arkong. So people would come from those places to come and watch the game. But we'd, we'd be having 16,000, 17,000 people. Uh, coming to our games when we were playing the big teams like Toulouse, Toulon, because our team was, we were a good team. We were for a lot of very good experienced internationals mm-hmm. and we'd be playing against, you know, a lot of the, likewise, another team we've got uh, vast experience and uh, teams full of internationals. But when we started losing players and not performing well, obviously the crowds just went down because people were just not willing to pay uh, the money. Um, uh, okay. So, uh, so do Biarritz draw their identity from the actual town itself or more broadly from like being Basque? Um, I think it's, I think it's a bit of both. Well, because look at Bayonne, Bayonne are Basque as well. And they're literally five kilometers away from Biarritz. Yeah. Cause I, did you not want to play? In- they get, they get absolute, they, they pack their stadium every single week. Do they? Yeah. Because I'm sure I'm sure I've seen Biritz play in Spain a couple of times. And Weta, yeah. Have they? Real Sociedad, yeah, I played there about four or five times. Oh, is it just to get the bigger attendance? Oh, we, well, yeah, but it's also... Well, we used to have the Bass Derby there. We played against Munster there, the Ospreys in the Heineken Cup. Um, and when, when we go there, that's why I think what's worked really well in the UK when they have the double headers or when Saracens play in Wembley yeah, and they get 8,000 people, I think it's brilliant for the game. I had uh, David Flatman on last week and we went into that. And I, I do think it's great for the game. Um, I just think that sometimes taking the home games away from, especially on the first weekend, I mean, yeah. why, not you, why not wait for the double header on the second weekend? So you've got the big event, so, so everyone can go to their home games, the first home game of the season, and then say on the third weekend or second weekend, do the double header. Which makes sense to me. Yeah, no, I agree. I, I I can agree with that. But I think, in all reality, like everything, it just comes down to money. Yeah, it's a huge money-making machine. Uh, you can put eighty thousand people in Wembley, eighty thousand people in Twickenham. Uh, promote huge promotion around the game, and I'm a, I'm a big uh, fan of these games going to different countries as well, like Saracens have done. Yeah, uh, well, going. To, I'm a I'm a big fan because it's spreading it's spreading the brand. Yep. of the club. It's spreading rugby union. Um, and if you look, it's an international game. Now, these guys will be used to going to, they're used to going to different uh, countries, different grounds and playing. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it have a huge effect. I personally don't think it have a huge effect on, on the result. No, um, I- but like you said, what I, I do, the guys who like going to their local clubs, then, you know, it's, um, I can see the reason why some people don't like it. But I think as, in terms of marketing rugby in itself, I think I think it's a, a brilliant thing to know, a thing that needs to carry on. Yeah, I, and I think to be fair, the, uh, the French did pioneer it because they had Stad playing to lose uh, uh, Stad de France yeah. years and years before the double header showed up. Yeah, and my wife, my pa- first year we played against Paris there as well. We played against uh, uh, Stad Francais. Nice. In- uh, uh, what was that like? Did they did they go the whole hog with the with the pink fireworks Same. and stuff? Absolutely packed. Brilliant. Uh, pink everywhere. No, no, it was... I, I, I don't think the game was very good. But <laughs> it was, was top-notch. <laughs> now, last thing I'll ask you about, Biritz, before we move on. 
I was reading, I think Wikipedia, do you know you go down like these little rabbit holes, you start reading one thing and then you're somewhere that you never expected to be. Um, I read somewhere that Beerits used to play on a Sunday and before they went to play on a Sunday, it was kind of club law that you had to go and have a a Sunday brisket and then play. <laughs> really? Was that what? Oh, well, it's like well, 60s or something. In the 60s? Something like I that. Can, I can well imagine it. I've not heard that before, but I, I can well imagine it. Yeah, and the other one apparently was... They obviously, um, they obviously played very well. <laughs> yeah, well, apparently the other one was famously Rassing who used to have champagne before the game, allegedly playing pink bow ties. But I don't know if that's just a rumour someone made up. No, no, no. I've heard that. They've definitely done that. They used to cycle to the game um, all together as a team. And exactly that. They definitely did that. It does raise a question then in you know today's society where everyone's looking to make money or merchandise as much as they can. Why they don't play in some sort of modified bow tie now? Uh, very I, good question. I, maybe, you should, maybe you should ring up and put that to them. I'd, I'd definitely buy one. So would I. Yeah. <laughs> there, there we go. Are you talking about the champagne or a bow tie? Both, both. Oh, both, exactly. <laughs> in fact, it could, in you fact, can't it, have one without the other. Yeah, it could come as a package. <laughs> we used to, um, my first game here, we played a night game. Yeah. Um, nine o'clock kickoff for TV. And we met at 10.30 in the morning at a hotel <gasps> and stayed together for, for 11 hours. For what reason? They... We used to do it before every single game. They say, you know, to bring the team together, to unify the team. Can you imagine everyone just sat around drinking coffee, playing cards on like the <laughs> worst sofas and armchairs? So you got to the game absolutely knackered with a <laughs> yeah. really bad back. I bet you couldn't. I, I bet you I couldn't wait to get changed and get warmed up. Well, but I never understood it honestly. I was sh- the first. I was just like, oh my god, <laughs> what the hell are we doing? <laughs> yeah, I, I imagine everyone's on a huge caffeinated come down as well. You've, uh, you've lost loads of cash to cards. <laughs> I, I still, it still baffles me now when I think about it. To be honest, <laughs> are, are they still doing that now? Uh, no, I don't think so. I think they just arrived at, straight to the ground an hour and a half, two hours before the game. Uh, what? Which, it's taken them seven years to do that. Eight years to do that. <laughs> What do you reckon that the ideal prep is then? I don't know. It, it, it differs from each person, doesn't it? Mm. Uh, and I know, obviously, you've got the nutritionists and physios, uh, fitness coaches, all this. They'll all have their own method. I think it comes down to just trying to find a general method for everybody uh, yeah. that, covers, that covers everybody. Some guys used to literally, who I played with, would not get uh, wouldn't go out to warm up until they had to which was 25 minutes before the match. They'd just sit there, read the paper, not get changed. Just oh, that's me. Last minute. That was me through and through. Other guys who would need to, as soon as they arrived at the ground, they were straight with their kit on, straight outside warming up. Yeah. Um, I think it totally depends on the individual. And there will be some studies uh, and the stats, I'm sure, of the best time to actually physiologically do your stuff with your body to do to, to warm up and stuff like that but i wouldn't have a clue uh, what's your personal preference um mine is to go out probably 20 minutes before the official warm-up mm-hmm. and do my own sort of stuff do a little bit of kicking and then crack on with the team stuff yeah uh... right laid out laid back it comes with everything with it obviously when i was younger you're a lot more nervous when you go into matches. Um, so you'd think, oh, I need to warm up loads. You just wanted to get out there and waste you know, a bit of energy, uh, nervous energy. But mm. obviously the older you get, you get to know your routines a lot better. You get to know your body a lot better. Uh, and some days you think, oh, it's cold. I'll go, I'll go out a bit early and warm up. And other days when it's sweltering hot, uh, like one of the first games here, it was like 41 degrees. So you just don't want to go outside because it's just so hot. Yeah, uh, it's very easy. Body warms up quickly, um, so I don't know. I think I just think like everything with experience, you just get to know your body better, and you just end up doing or needing to do what you know what you need to do. Yeah. If that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, and also I, I think I think your habits change as you, uh, uh, like you say your habits change as you get older. And one of the things that I noticed as I got older, and I'm sure changing room speeches are the same around around the world, and at all levels, is you start hearing the same speeches over and over again. And that's when you know that you're getting just a little bit too old for the game. Well, we used to, when I, again, when I first arrived in France, the French, you know, are very passionate and there's a big explosion of words from everybody in the room, a lot of swearing. <laughs> yeah. Um, 
banging of heads. And I was remember sat next to, I was stood next to squeezing in this huddle next to Fabian Barcella. Uh-huh. And he turned around and I think he headbutted Benoit Auguste in the side of the head or every one of our props. And then he turned around and he headbutted me. <laughs> Honestly, he nearly knocked me out. So from that first game, I never, ever, ever got into a huddle again in Beards. Did you not? <laughs> never, ever, ever once. Ooh. It was, it just, I just didn't need that sort of motivation. I know that the world's apart, but I used to like showing up to games. And because you used to show up like an hour and a half too early, and I, you know, no one needs that. Going to the clubhouse, getting a coffee, and talking to their old boys, because that's when you get to know about the entire team, because the old boys will tell you everything. Because they just yeah. want, they just want some, really someone to talk to. Yeah, no, agreed. Agreed. We had that on a Monday morning, the big debrief from the, the, local, the locals. About 50 of them hung around the uh, Bayo Cafe. So when you go in there, you, you get accosted by all of them, just telling you how you played, what you didn't do right, what you did right, and what you can improve. <laughs> That's brilliant, actually. Because I, I, from talking to lads in the French League, they do seem to get an awful lot more contact with local fans than, say, you yeah, do in, say, Harlequins they, or somewhere. They come, uh, all the local, they come to each training session. They'll be there at the club every Monday without fail. I love that. Uh, they'll be there and they'll give, give you their two pennies worth. Uh, um, and they're, well, they're very passionate support. They've, they're, as I said, because rugby's so big down here, mm-hmm. they've, um, they're rugby through and through, so they love getting involved with it. And they're very, very passionate about their clubs, which, you know, which I, I quite liked. Yeah, I can get nauseating and sometimes just like, oh, please leave me alone. But, you know, they're entire. They pay their season ticket there. You know, they want to see good rugby. They want to see their clubs, you know, play well and stay up. So when that doesn't happen and when things aren't going right, you know, they've got a right to, to get annoyed. Yeah. Well, do you know what? It's I can imagine that happening in, say, Exeter. Like some, some local uh, pops around on his Massey Ferguson and just watches for half an hour. I can't imagine that happening in, in say... You know, Carrington, where sail train. You know, it just seems a world apart. Yeah, I don't, I know, uh, I know. Well, I don't know. Does it happen in football? Do people, do the local supporters, the turn up at training and? Do you know what? I don't they think they players, will they? Yeah, I don't think they do. But I don't think it's because they don't want to. I think because football is so um, divorced from the people actually, you know, from the actual fans, they just would, simply totally. wouldn't be allowed to. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, which I think is quite sad at the same time. But mind you, Gloucester's a pretty, um, you know, it's got a pretty fanatical fan base. Did you have anything like that there? They, well, because we didn't train actually in Gloucester, we trained at Hartbury. Uh, okay. Uh, away, we didn't get many fans coming. But I think after games, you know, if you played well, they'd, they'd give you a pat on the back. If you didn't play well, you didn't pull your way. I think what they wanted at Gloucester is that if they, you showed that you were giving 100%, if mistakes were made, they wouldn't, you know, make mistakes for me. But it's when, you know, you just weren't giving it 100%. And they can, they're very, very passionate. They're a fantastic bunch of supporters. Yeah, they very are. Very intimidating yeah, when you first go there, especially from Bath. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, but they're, you know, again, they, they're, they're rugby through and through. They're passionate about the club. Um, and, you know, they showed it at times by... You know, vocally, if they weren't happy, they'd let you know about it. So yeah. until you pick your socks up, but when you did, uh, when you pick your socks up and got on with it, you know they'd let you know. You'd, they'd let you know that as well. Yeah, I, I would just suggest that if it didn't happen in Gloucester, like the fans coming down to training, it probably doesn't happen in England. I, I guess. No, no, I don't. I don't. Yeah, I don't. <laughs> the better things to do on a Monday morning. <laughs> <laughs> now, something I have to ask you is regarding mm. your ex Gloucester teammate and I assume still very good friend Mike Tyndall you were his best man at his wedding which on the face of it sounds unremarkable until you remember he's married into royalty uh, how was that? Uh, it was good fun <laughs> in my head I can't work out if a royal wedding because obviously you don't get you know, to see the, the insides if it's going to be more like a, a, a state banquet or it's going to be a, a far looser affair, a, affair with a lot of people that like a lot of drink um i think it was both i think at the start of the evening it was more like a state banquet it was very it was it was an incredible day like incredible two days to be honest two um, days but, well we well we all met up the day before oh, right yeah, yeah um i went out that night and then obviously the wedding day mm-hmm. um but it wasn't it people had a very good time it was 
don't want to say anything. I put my foot in it. <laughs> <laughs> Only say positive things. No, no, it was a great, it was a great uh, occasion. It, you th- you'd think, you know, there were 600 people there. So when you go in and I saw the room, I was like, oh my God. 600 I people? Yeah, so I think it was 600, you know, and it was immaculately done, as you can imagine. That but when is it, amazing. When you go into the, the garden and see everybody tucking into all the drinks available, you know, it, there was a lot of people. I had no, I had no, uh, doubt that it was going to be a great night in terms of everyone was mingling everyone was mixing yeah uh, i'm just having a really really good time uh, there was some people before and obviously friends oh my god don't do this don't do that i think i was more nervous about my speech than anything else swear front of the queen i've got to say <laughs> um you know my heart rate has gone up just a tiny bit now thinking about having to give a speech to 600 people including uh, the head of state yeah and, no, it was nerve-wracking oh I- and you're gonna make her laugh as well well, yes. Um, I was very nervous before. I must admit, very, very, very nervous. How did uh, you How did you go about it? Did you think of all the things that you could say and then just get rid of them? Well, no. I was really worried about swearing, but then Zara came up to me and said, "Stop being a miserable bastard. <laughs> say what you want. Um, no one will give a monkeys." So I did pretty much say what I wanted, and it went down quite well. well it went down very well, actually. Oh, excellent. Uh, my in the morning was like, please don't swear, swear in front of the Queen, please don't swear. And my missus obviously said the same thing. Don't, yeah. Don't, don't let the tongue to uh, fly too loose. Um, um, but no, it's, uh, I, I say exactly what I wanted to say. Everyone was happy. And did the whole royal contingent, did they, uh, I mean, was it obvious that they were royals or did they all just settle down and mill around uh, um, eventually? No, no, every, they were all mixed. Everyone was mixed on different tables. Obviously, there was the head table. Uh-huh. Uh, and then all the other royals were sat amongst everybody else. Uh, they weren't all sat together. No, no, no. They all mixed and mingled and uh, partied just as hard as everybody else. What an incredible experience. Yeah, no, it was great. It was, it was really good. So, from one national event, will you be keeping track of the sevens come, come the Olympics? Oh, definitely yeah, have an eye on it, yeah. Uh, no, uh, I think it's a fantastic spectacle now. It's getting bigger and bigger, uh, and I think it is. When well, you look at all the teams involved, there's five or six teams, seven teams who can do really, really well in it. Yeah, so, it's I think a- also as well because of the way it's played. You look at the Hong Kong sevens. You look at the Dubai sevens. You look at Twickenham now. It's more of a party atmosphere, and people like it. They like seeing something. Loads of skill, loads of action, big hits, fast pace. Uh, but it's only 40 minutes. Mm. So there's lots going on in 40 minutes. Everyone's there in fancy dress partying. I think Sevens is going to get very, very big, and I think it'll get very big if America do well. Yeah, I don't know uh, where I stand on this, really, because I do like Sevens. I'll watch it, and it'll catch my eye, and then you know, six minutes later, you're engrossed in the game. But the idea of Sevens doesn't really take me the way that, that yeah. 15s does. Um, I just hope it doesn't end up like... Test cricket, which everyone loves, well, some people love, yeah. but then 2020, which is a great game, but then almost detracts from the from the test cricket. Purist. Yeah, I guess that's what I'm trying to say. Well, no, I can understand that. Well, there's, there's room for both, isn't there? But I think to get more people watching 15s, mm-hmm. they'll go non, non-rugby-minded people or non-rugby fans, football fans, for instance, they would probably go and watch a game of sevens or go to a day out at sevens before they go to... Yeah, perhaps. And I guess with it only being 14 minutes... I'm not sure. (laughs) Yeah, I guess with it only being 14 minutes, you can get in. I suppose the best thing you can hope for is it'll kind of be like... um, How can I put it? Like like a gateway drug. You know, uh, you start with something soft and then eventually it gets more and more hardcore uh, until you find yourself watching, I don't know, like the championship playoffs or something. Yeah, yeah, I don't. I think from friends of mine who are not into rugby whatsoever, mm-hmm. why would I go on a January evening to watch a game when it's absolutely hoeing it down with rain and it's like zero degrees? Mm-hmm. Would I prefer to go and watch, spend a couple of days at the Dubai Sevens? That is a good point. That is a good point. Where lots going on, party atmosphere, you know, and to just look at the rugby, look at the stars you've got going to the Olympics. I don't know. We'll see. Uh, I think there's room for both. I think what it will do, though, more and more 15s guys will want to go and play sevens. I think it's also a really good learning uh, a ground for 
kids coming through to practice. Yes, that's a good point. Because you get so much ball time. One-on-one tackling, passing. Um, you know, I reg- I'd love to have played a couple of years at the Sevens when I was 19, 20. Well, it's strange, uh, strange you mention that because I was um, just looking through like your Wikipedia and nowhere in there is it ever mentioned in the Sevens. And I don't yeah. actually remember watching you play Sevens, but you seem like a very, you seem like you'd be a very good Sevens player. I played in one, I played in the Paris Sevens in one tournament when uh, Andrew Harriman was coach. Mm-hmm. And I got asked to go after that to Hong Kong, but Robert, Robbo, Andy Robinson, wouldn't allow me because we had a home game or something in the 15s. So that was my only two ever chances of, well, one chance I actually played, but the other one, that was the only chance of actually going to Hong Kong. But unfortunately, Robbo wouldn't let me go. Oh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly right. That's a shame because, uh, like, you, like your style of play and everything else would have lent itself perfectly to sevens. Yeah, no, I, I loved going to. Oh, it's a very different game. My God, we I think we played against Fiji, <laughs> and because obviously we were all young lads coming through, mm-hmm. we got absolutely hammered. Forty-five points, like just the speed of which and just the fitness levels of which they had compared to us. Yeah was phenomenal. Um, and I think people don't realise that until you've actually given it a go. No. Uh, um, you know, these Sevens boys are seriously fit. Yeah, like, like you kind of said, um, back in the day, you basically had some fast 15s players and away you went. The Sevens guys now are so far removed from 15s. I'm not entirely sure they could inter- integrate back into a, a 15s team that easily. The different shapes. You look at all the guys. I know there's a few 15s players who have gone who uh, are going to Rio, but there's not many who have actually put their name forward and said, look, I'm really keen to go, uh, who have actually made it into the Sevens teams. Yeah. Because they are, they are so specialist. Has Sonny Bill made it into Sevens team? I, don't, yeah. I have no idea. No, no, he's gone. He's gone, yeah. He's sick, sick at everything. Um, yeah. I know Quade Cooper got turned down, and I know, quite famously, Jared Hayne isn't going. Yeah. But yeah, I think he might be the only seven, the only fifteens player of any notes going to, going to real. Well, Mark Bennett yeah, no, from Scotland. I say, yeah, I, I don't know if anybody is. Um, who was the other? Was it uh, Messam? Was he trying? Was he trying to? Liam Messam. I don't know. No. Is it Messam? There's another back rower. Uh, Liam Blacks. Do you mean uh, Liam Messam? Yes, I did not say that. Sorry. Uh, <laughs> um, um, I, just by that. Statement itself, you can see I don't follow any rugby at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I don't follow sevens. I find it it's it's going to require so much more investment of my time to get to know the players and the rest of it. Watch it when you when it's on the, the Olympics. Oh, absolutely! I mean, I remember watching it Commonwealth Games a few years ago when Matthew Tate uh, basically looked like he was about to take over the world, and it was fantastic. So uh, I'm by no means writing it off, and I do sound a bit cynical, but I don't mean it. I am actually looking forward to it tremendously. Um, but I, I've just got a, got this worry. We're going to have a, a deluge of tweets over, over the next few weeks about why sevens is uh, so much better than fifteens, and lots of Johnny Come Latelys. And do you know what I'm doing, Ian? I'm being very miserable. I'm being very miserable. So I well, so I should stop it. No, you're not being miserable. You're giving your opinion. But yeah, actually, <laughs> I'd be miserable. Sevens is a good sport. Hopefully, we'll do well at the games. <laughs> yeah. So um, before I let you go, then is there anything that we should um, look out for from Ian Bolshaw for the next couple of months? I'll be going back to Dubai. Every year I go with a team to Dubai to play in the tens. Oh, do you? Uh, yeah. I'll be going to we're going to do that. And also I play part of a French company who we play. It's called Six Stations de Ski. We go and play in the six ski resorts uh, in the Alps. <laughs> That's uh, ridiculous. Um, on, on snow. We play sevens on snow. Uh, I've been for the last two years. So I'm organizing quite a few of the British players coming across. Simon Shaw played last year. Uh-huh. Colin Jarvis played as well. Lee Byrne. What standard do you have to be? It's very, very good standard. Not oh. on the rugby field. Off the rugby field. It's a very high standard. Uh, well, uh, I've got my own little um, celebrity match, I think, which is hopefully, I say hopefully, in, in August, yeah. BT Sport plays Sky Sport. And I'm not sure exactly which players play, or, or if any of them do, if it's just like the backroom stuff, but we've been invited, me and my two colleagues from the other podcast, to play for BT Sport. So that could be good fun. Fantastic. 
Providing they don't play like Scott Quinnell. Scott Quinnell and these boys will be playing or not? I've got no idea. They should be. Do, do you know what the Do you know what the worrying thing is? Right, is if you start talking to people like we, uh, you know, like we've got some contact with lads from BT Sport, like David, you know, David Flatman, or so, so on and so forth. Yeah. You start in the back of your mind thinking because you don't know him through rugby. Oh yeah, I'll tip up on a field and have a little play around. And I've just got a feeling that we're going to do that in our heads, feeling that we'll be okay and uh, end up completely out of our depth. Nah, you'll be sweet, mate. You'll be fine. Don't worry about it. Just yeah. your boots and crack on. Yeah, it's fine. It's Don't fine. run straight into someone like David Flatman because he probably, well, he definitely won't move. No, like, no, no. I'm, I'm planning on going around uh, David <laughs> Flatman or kicking the ball away. I, you know, I'm sure I could develop a kicking game prior to that. He's a softie. Just give him a cuddle. You'll be all right. I've got to say, since doing this podcast and talking to players on the off-season, one of the things which sounds the most fun about being a professional rugby player and then a retired rugby player, or the amount of like social tournaments and where they're held. You've just given me a new one, which is the Six Ski Resorts. Prior to yeah, that, uh, there was a charity match hosted by WWE star JBL in Bermuda. I think I'm going to try and get like a little calendar of these things and see which ones I can attend. I think you could go. We, I, I tried to I, recently. I tried to someone about it. There's probably around ten well-known veteran events worldwide that you can go to is as it? an ex-rugby player, um, yeah. which is quite a lot. <laughs> Certainly not good for your liver. <laughs> no. Good for your liver. That, that, that's a... The best thing about them is everyone turns up and we still do, everyone's got that competitive edge Yeah, and still wants to do well. So the standard can, you know, it's still pretty good. But everyone's just there for a good laugh and to see lads you played against and played with uh, through the years and also just playing in different totally different countries like I did Bermuda not so so long ago you go to Dubai there's the Cape Town there's the Singapore Tens Hong Kong Tens uh, Six Stations of the Ski which is just completely ridiculous because you cannot stay on your feet is that uh, is that well attended um, is, is that well attended year, from uh, non-participants as in terms of spectators yeah well, I don't know why I didn't just say spectators actually yeah, it's a very formal way of saying <laughs> yeah. the participants. Yeah. Um, last year, the final was on French TV. Was it? Uh, yeah. Uh, at Le Clouseur, um It was on French TV. I think about 2,000 people turned up around. That's uh, insane. Yeah, and they had it on French TV the last two games. And then do you do a bit of skiing afterwards? Well, what you do is you turn up on the day. There's, each ski resort has its own sponsors. Mm-hmm. So you do it. So you turn up, uh, we turn up probably the day before. Yeah. Um, we all have a meet and greet. And then we all go out to dinner together. A few quiet vinos. Of course. Uh, um, the next day we have ski in the morning if you want, lunch with the sponsors. Then we have like a ski activity in the afternoon uh, around about four o'clock where it's like a competition between the teams. So you had like downhill slalom, um, luge, <laughs> things like that. Um, and then at six o'clock, between six and seven, we play 15 minutes. And after that, again, we all go and get changed. And it's dinner out with all the, the major sponsors and stay in the ski resort for that evening, finish whatever time. So and the next day, we get up, burst, and we just do that for six days. Wow. So all these ski... Let me guess right. Are the ski resorts playing against each other? Have I got that wrong or right? Who no, are the teams? You're 100% right. It, well, I think it's changing next year. Okay. Uh, so this year we had teams like Val Toren, uh, Le Minuir, mm-hmm. um, Saint-Gervais, uh, La Clouseur. There's two more I can't remember. And who do you play for? I changed my first year. I played for Saint-Gervais. Mm-hmm. Last year I played for Val Torren, so I don't know who I'm going to play for this year. And who, arra- uh, so, and, and who arranges each team? So Jan Deleg, who was a centre for Toulouse. Uh, yeah, for France, I've, I've not heard that uh, name for a long time. Yeah, he organises it um, with a few, other, a few other people and brings all sponsors in and all that. And he basically picks the teams each year. Um, we actually play, it's not all sort of ex-rugby player slash celebrity like people mm-hmm. so half the team I think there's a big what goes on there's a big uh, competition around France okay 
people enter the competition. So half the team is with amateurs, amateur rugby clubs, amateur rugby players, university rugby players. So half the team is done on universe, uh, amateurs and half the team is done on ex-pros. Um, so there'll be five, four, five, six pros playing with four or five amateurs or vice versa. And what time of year is this? Just so I can get, um, get a, a, a rough gauge? February. February. It's, I think it's the 20th of February, around the 20th of February this year. Unbelie- that, that's unbelievable, Intel. Thank you very much for that. Yeah. Well, um, It is a lot of fun. A lot of fun. But make sure you like Rickard. Because <laughs> there's a lot of that drunk. Ah, that is yeah. I'm sure. I'm, I'm sure that I'll absolutely love it. Um, well, <laughs> best of luck with the um, six resorts. The six resorts rugby tournament can't believe exists. And I'll be happy to have you back on the podcast when, whenever you wish. You're always welcome back. No problem at all, mate. Just let me know. Cheers, Ian. Have a good night.